0: This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Bev Jones, and this is Jazzed About Work, where we talk about everything that can have an impact on your career. Today, we're talking with Sherry Little. As a young woman, Sherry was a congressional staffer for 13 years, rising to be one of the more influential staffers in the Senate. Then, while still in her 30s, in the last years of the Bush administration, she moved to the Federal Transit Administration, where fairly soon she became the leader. She then left government service to become an entrepreneur. Sherry is now a partner in Cardinal Infrastructure, a Washington, D.C. firm dedicated to funding and financing strategies and advising people and corporations on regulatory compliance with complex federal laws. People are intrigued by somebody who comes from Mississippi and goes to the hill and kind of rises to the top and then goes to the administration and almost immediately rises to the top. And I I, I wanna, as you know, I always like to get tips out, but I also To the extent you want to share, I want you to tell us what it was like, what it was like to be a young person on the Hill and how exciting it was, and what did you learn as you moved along? I was actually
2: thinking about this the other day because I had a friend in town who was 20 years old who had just come to Washington for the first time, and I was taking her on the Metro and showing her a couple of the sites, and one of the stops that we made was on the Hill. I knew from the time I was very young that it was my plan and intention to go to work on the Hill. In fact, after watching a couple congressional hearings when I was a teenager, my um, plan was to work on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and the only deviation I took from that was ended up on the Senate Banking Committee rather than Judiciary. But that was a pretty small step, um, pretty small deviation from the plan and just actually two floors above where I had intended to be and where I set out my goals when I was a teenager. And I was recently reminded when I was taking my 20-year-old friend around what a heady opportunity it is to be in D.C. when you're young and there are so many opportunities available to you. And it's such a dynamic place with really interesting people that have come from all over to serve their government. Was it a little bit scary
1: to to just arrive and, and know that there were so many opportunities, but you didn't know where to begin?
2: I don't, I don't know whether I would describe it exactly as scary. It was very motivating to me and very stimulating to me. And I had envisioned where I wanted to be from the time I was young. So I felt like I was going in the direction that I wanted to go and mapping out a career path that led me to where I am today. So other than a couple of deviations, um, I have pretty much followed my 5- to 20-year plan.
1: Wow. Well, so many young people... Don't have a clue uh, about where they want to be, how how to get started. how How did you come up with your vision in the first place? Do you remember?
2: I had a fabulous government teacher when I was in high school, a fabulous government teacher. And she turned me on to all the opportunities that are available in Washington and had me watching things that were different than what my peers were watching. So, for example, when most people were watching, I don't know, whatever was popular at the time, probably MTV, I was watching the McNeil-Lair News Hour, which didn't necessarily make for a particularly stimulating conversation amongst uh-huh. my peers, but it did help me appreciate where I wanted to go, and it got me interested and engaged in current events and made me appreciate what I could possibly do to influence those. So I started out with some interest areas that were based on some personal experience that I had and then just skip hopped over to the banking committee when the opportunity became available there. And I had a tenure there of about 15 years starting from an intern um, on the house side temporarily when I was in college. And then when I moved up from Mississippi to go to graduate school, I finished that quickly and then went to work on the Hill maybe a week afterward.
1: And so the banking committee um, is a committee with jurisdiction broader than the name would suggest. You started out pretty early in transportation, didn't you?
2: I did. The unique thing about the banking committee in the Senate is that it has banking, housing, and urban affairs, and there isn't exactly a singular equivalent to that on the House side. The jurisdiction is broken up amongst a couple of different committees. So I was the housing and urban affairs component of banking, housing, and urban affairs under two chairmen both of whom were very different in temperament and motivations and um, issue priorities. So I got the chance to experience what it was like to serve two different chairmen of the committee that were very different, and their priorities were different. So I started out with a portfolio that included the housing and urban affairs component of it and then worked my way into an issue area expertise in infrastructure finance, which includes public transportation, but mostly how do you pay for infrastructure. And because I came from a banking background, I had more of an appreciation for that particular component of it.
1: On Capitol Hill, for a staff member, survival and thriving really depend on an ability to know who you're working for, know what their goals are, and helping them get to achieve those goals. And yet, although you certainly mastered that, when I first noticed you, I remember uh, getting to know you because you not only delivered what your boss needed, but you were able to think about things that were important to you and independently step into leadership. The thing I'm thinking about is when you made an effort to have a, a statue move from the basement up to the rotunda, do you want to tell us about that?
2: That was the first piece of legislation I was ever involved in. And that came from my time on the Senate Rules Committee, which is a committee that I served on preceding my time on the Banking Committee and was still one of the things that I'm most most proud of. And um, there's a visual, literally a visual monument to something I was working on um, that still is in the Capitol today. So this came about as a result of a women's group the National Women's Party that's located at the Sewell-Belmont House, and they were going to celebrate the 75th anniversary of women's suffrage. And talking to the women leaders, they they gathered and put, t- put their minds around what is it that would be an appropriate way to commemorate the greatest bloodless revolution of all time, the women's suffrage movement. And they decided that one way to do that is to put a, a visual reminder of what these women did in order to get themselves the right to vote. So there's a statue that incorporates Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Lucretia Mott. And they are made up into one singular statue. And that statue had been introduced and unveiled at the Capitol in the Capitol Rotunda and then had been moved down to the basement. And it was not very frequently seen. It wasn't carefully cared for. And after a long series of years and some back and forth between the House and the Senate about the appropriateness of this particular statue... About the appropriateness of the location, moving it into the you know the greatest most visual part of our United States legislative body, and who could take credit for it, it it was finally relocated to the Capitol Rotunda where it where it is today. And I learned you know really got myself some legislative chops working on that project. And I love to be able to take people up to the Capitol and look at that monument. It's um, it's something that I think is compelling not only because there's such a beautiful story behind it, but also it's a visual reminder to young women and girls that come through there that we're a part of our nation's history
1: and, and it was, was it was surprisingly um, controversial over the years, wasn't it there was it was real opposition to having the that statue moved up where people could see it
2: it was it was it was surprising and that's something that seems like it would be so. Motherhood and Apple Pie actually did have a lot of controversy associated with it, and in the end, the um, solution to getting the support that was needed in order to pass a piece of legislation, an identical piece of legislation through the House and the Senate, was private financing. So instead of um, having the United States Capitol architect come up with the money in their budget to locate this multi-ton st- relocate this multi-ton statute statue from the basement up to the Capitol rotunda we decided, wouldn't it be more compelling to say the people of America voted to relocate this, and they voted with their pocketbooks. So working with two really stellar women in the um, women's rights movement, we started this national campaign to say, if you believe that women ought to be recognized in the rotunda and their battle ought to be honored, send us $1. Send us $1 and until we reach our goal of $75,000, which was the amount of money that we estimated it was going to cost to relocate this huge marble structure from the bottom floor up to the top floor. And as it turns out, asking for $1 is not a brilliant marketing campaign because people that could have paid for uh-huh. the whole thing in one swoop, in one check, sent us $1 because that's what we asked for. But it was a learning experience, and the end result is something I'm really
1: proud of. Well, you did a good thing with that leadership, but you also learned a lot about uh, rules and politics and legislation and financing, which is something that you really came to understand on the banking committee, isn't it?
2: I did. I did. And that's one of the parts of my job that I particularly like and have been able to focus on that, the specific infrastructure finance component as a real um, as the, as the real and focused component of my career. It's the most interesting thing about what we're working on right now.
1: So you were on the Hill all of those years, and then you made the jump in the later years of the Bush administration from, from being an important and, and maybe one of the most influential staffers in the Senate, but still not having a big leadership team yourself. You went from there to the Federal Transit Administration, where all of a sudden what you went as the deputy administrator, is that right?
2: That's right, and it's a presidential appointment, and I worked for President Bush and served Secretary Mineta and then Secretary Peters, both of whom were fantastic to work for, and it was just a great opportunity, but also a huge learning curve because having a few people that you worked with to execute an agenda where you weren't the principal, but you're advising the principal, the senator in this case, is very different than going to lead an agency where we had um, 516 staff approximately and a $10 billion budget.
1: And you, And, uh, and you went as the deputy and pretty soon you were the acting administrator for some time. So you really found yourself as the leader of this $10 billion budget pretty quickly, didn't you?
2: I did. And thankfully, the person that was administrator before me was a great role model for me. He's an entrepreneur, came from the private sector, owned a trucking company, and was very inspirational and also very different in how he approached and motivated people. So what I thought I was going to be doing when I accepted the presidential appointment was policy-related and reacting to what was happening in the legislative branch and working with industry groups externally to make sure they were part of our agenda or they understood what we were doing and getting feedback from them. But in the end, one of the things I've learned and that has been a, a consistent throughout my career is that your ability to succeed in any job depends on your ability to manage and motivate people. And that was the biggest learning experience that I had in moving from a um, role where I had a couple of people that I worked with, but moving to a job where I had a budget that I was managing and was trying to carry out an agenda that was consistent with what the secretary and the president wanted. Um, it's very different. It was a very different role. And it was a, an exciting and challenging time.
1: So how do you motivate people? How, how did you motivate people when you found yourself at the top of this, this big bureaucracy, but also you had to motivate people across the political spectrum and all kinds of stakeholders? How do you do it?
2: Well, it, it, it was a challenge, like you said, because it, unlike in the private sector where you can motivate people by, giving them bonuses tied to their performance. In the federal government, it isn't that easy because the process works very slowly. So it's difficult to incentivize people with money. So I had to ask myself, what is it about the roles that I have had in the past that made me motivated or not motivated? And probably the number one thing that I used because I learned it from someone else, and I have a story associated with that I'll tell you about, is public praise and private criticism public praise and private criticism. So if you have if if your employees feel like you have their back and you encourage them to come up with new and innovative ideas and you share your vision with them and include them on your journey, not just thank you for the advice, thank you for the memo, but you include them along your journey and you use them and honor them as subject matter experts, then they're going to be more likely to be supportive of you and your agenda if they understand it. And when you get to the point where you have a trusted group of people that are around you publicly praise them, when you're at industry group events or when you're at staff meetings or when you're talking to their, their family, their friends and families, there's the opportunity to, to visit with them socially, public praise goes a long way. And the flip side of that is private criticism. If you've got some critiques that you need to give employees, the appropriate time and place to do that is not in a public setting or around other people because you're gonna get much more a much better reaction if you tell people you need a different set of skills, a different kind of motivation, a different kind of behavior, professional behavior out of them if you're having it having that discussion with them face to face.
1: Did you learn that the hard way or did you have a gentle mentor someplace along the line?
2: I had a general mentor, and I also learned it the hard way. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I had, um, in between the time I was on the Senate Rules Committee and on the Senate Banking Committee, I worked in a leadership office in the Senate. And the person who was my supervisor, I really didn't know that well. Um, and he was a businessman, very competent, and he came in because he was um, a close friend and ally of the leaders at the time. And he didn't know me very well. I didn't know him very well and I was in my box completing my role, and I would share information with him as he asked for it, but I didn't volunteer a whole lot of information, primarily because I didn't want to clog up his day in his email box or volunteer time, and I felt like I knew what I was doing, and when I had trouble, I would let him know. So one particular day, um, someone from um, the other side of the hill, um, we were working on a bicameral issue, and someone from the other side of the hill who was as senior as you can get without an election certificate came over and sat down with my boss and had some very pointed criticism for me and my 25 year old self and the first Uh reaction of my boss it was terrifying I still remember shaking in my seat when I got the phone call saying please come in I want to talk to you about something and there's someone here who who wants to share some information with you so this person Um, who was my boss at the time. Jim Ziegler, if you're listening to this, I've never forgotten this, and I've never forgotten the lesson that I learned from it. Jim said to the person who came over to accuse me, um, that's not the Sherry that I know. After he described what, what the perceived crime was, he said, that's not the Sherry that I know. And then he gave me the opportunity to defend myself. Instead of having a conversation between these two principals, he brought me in and said, you know, this gentleman came and said these these three things have occurred, and I told him that's not the Sherry that I know. What can you tell me about this? I explained myself, um, and my my boss at the time, Jim Ziegler, stood up, thanked the gentleman for coming, and said, "I'll handle this, um, and I have every confidence in Sherry and her abilities, and we we will take care of this. And this is." This is not something that we need to perseverate on. And he thanked him for his time and he showed him the door. I spent the rest of the day shaking and going over the meeting in my head and trying to decide whether or not I had actually um, done something that was unforgivable. And he stopped by my desk at the end of the day. And again, this isn't someone that I knew very well. He stopped by my desk at the end of the day and he said, how are you doing? And I told him that I was kind of shaken up, you know, having been called on the carpet like that. And he said... Um, probably next time when the opportunity presents itself, we could handle a repeat situation a little differently. Let me tell you what I mean. And then he described when this next opportunity comes about, here's what I'd like to see you do. And then we wrapped it up and I ended up taking a huge sigh of relief and going home and feeling like this is someone who defended me and protected me in front of others. And then at the end of the day, he gave me a gentle scolding. And the response from that was, this is someone who is deserving of my respect, my loyalty, and my support. Because he stood up for me when he really didn't have to, and I have never forgotten it. And my goal was to take that lesson and to do that with my employees, not discourage them from doing things that could potentially get them in trouble, but after they go through a you know, methodical, thoughtful process, make a decision, and then know that I'm going to stick behind them, because they did go through a thoughtful, methodical process. And when it doesn't turn out the way we want it to, I want them to know that I'm going to have their back. But I'm also going to let them know, here's what we want the outcome to look like, and here's here. let's handle it differently next time. And when you do, I'm going to be with you.
0: We'll be back with Bev after this brief message. In a world where impact matters, the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University offers innovative solutions to challenges. It's ranked as the 39th most innovative public service school in the nation, and it's in the top 100 U.S. News & World Report Best Public Affairs Grad Schools. The Voinovich School is a catalyst for regional, state, and national impact in entrepreneurship, energy, and the environment. With 11 full-time faculty members and 60 professional staffers, the Voinovich School partners with nonprofit organizations, governments, and the private sector to solve problems. It's the home of the master's programs in public administration and environmental studies. Students engage in real-world learning and networking to bring their ideas to life. For more information, visit Ohio.edu backslash Voinovich School.
1: remember one of the wise things that you decided was going to be part of your leadership style is you were going to be there. You were going to show up. You were going to keep your calendar full of opportunities for people to have contact with you. I, I think you even went walking around those huge buildings there uh, <laughs> and invited people to walk with you because that was another opportunity to, to be present. Is, is that right? Did that work? It did work.
2: It did work. And I, I I believe that there's no monopoly on good ideas and that, you know, vision, insight, improvement on how the agency can be better isn't just among the senior executives that are in their 50s and 60s and that have gotten to the, the high point of their career, but it can also come from the folks that answer the phone or that get coffee or our summer interns. So every day, um, every day that I wasn't traveling on business for the secretary for our industry, Um, I went for a walk every day in the building at work and I put out a notice to all of the staff that were present that anyone who wanted to walk with me for 20 minutes around the building or outside if the weather was temperate could do so. And I learned so much from that, Bev. I learned so much, small things like, um, here's a better way to handle a customer service issue, or, um, here's a better way to run this $2 billion program, or, Here's a regulation that is so old and dusty that it needs to be have the, the um, dust blown off of it and needs some attention. And I got all kinds of different guidance from that, some of which I took, some of which I didn't. But I think people appreciated being heard, and I appreciated having an opportunity to get some exercise, meet some new people, and learn what it was that, that they had to offer. Because I, w- I really was, even though I came in at the deputy administrator level and then ended up running the agency... I didn't know anything about how the agency worked until I actually got there. So I figured I should go to the experts, and I provided them the opportunity to do that every day over lunch.
1: Well, it worked for you. I know you won a major award and and developed very quickly quite a reputation as an unusually strong and effective leader. But then as uh, we drew close to the close of the um, Bush administration, you decided to take a pretty big leap, didn't you? I did.
2: I did. I had a couple of different opportunities somewhere to go to work at associations to start a new association that was um, promoting private sector investment in surface transportation. Um, and ultimately, I decided to team up with some people that I respected and who had complementary skills, but not overlapping um, skills and talents and start a business. And um, the, the person actually that was the administrator before me and I and two others um, started a new venture. And I'm grateful it's been very successful. And it hasn't been easy along the way. We've had some calculated risks that we've taken, some of which have panned out, some of which haven't. But the idea was we were going to exhibit the um, characteristics of an entrepreneur. And I didn't come from an entrepreneurial background. I didn't have um, experience in that. And I've learned quite a few things from the development and the restructuring of my business. And that's those are things about the importance of being collaborative and determined and looking at innovation, surrounding yourself with doers, and also focusing on the outcome, not the process. And that's one way where people easily get bogged down, and I'm not immune to that either because sometimes I need to take a step back and think, what is the definition of success for this particular client? and not focus on the process so much.
1: And government process and managing process and understanding processes is often key. But um, give me an example of of how it's it's different on a particular project. What kind of projects have you worked on where, by having a clear outcome, helped you kind of get it all together?
2: Well, one of the frustrating things about Washington being so um, partisan lately is that before advancing some of these projects, you need to have everyone on the same page and agree on what the definition of success is. So if you have a $2 billion rail project in your community and you have opposition, um, supporters and opponents on both sides, and you, you need to figure out who the decision makers are and come to them where they are, approach them in such a way that speaks a language that they speak. And that's not always easy to do because the collaborators maybe want to make political hay out of a project being funded or not being funded because they want to get the credit for it. And and that's been that's been an increasing problem. So trying to figure out how to focus on what the definition of success is, and in this case and in my business the definition of success is getting these multi billion dollar projects funded, how do you do that in such a way that People end up feeling ownership of the project. They get a um, they get the success associated with it, and don't let the setbacks keep them back. And that that has been a continuing challenge. So trying to navigate through the increasingly partisan nature of um, Washington politics has been has been a challenge. But one of the great things about infrastructure, Bev, is that it's often not. On political lines, it doesn't. It's, it, uh, it's not on partisan finance. lines, exactly. Exactly, infrastructure finance is something that both Republicans and Democrats support. So, if you can figure out what motivates them, maybe for one it's labor relations, and maybe for another it's creation of jobs associated with a particular project. Figuring out how to craft your message to get the outcome that you want is really important.
1: So another part of motivating people, and it's something you learned on the Hill, is everybody's motivated in a different way. So you have to understand what people need out of the situation. Is that right?
2: Exactly. Exactly. And sometimes it isn't what you think it is. So a lot of being good at your job, at any job, is listening, active, active listening and then following up on that. So if you go back to the same person um, who clearly delivered a message of, I don't like this for this reason, the next time you interact with that person, you need to have figured out what the follow-up is or some sort of middle ground to how to address that, because otherwise you're not taking a step forward. You're just shuffling from side to side.
1: The thing you had with the, that project of moving the statue early in your career and that you still have, because it's Physically there um, is is that physicality—the fact that there's a thing, there's something that people can see—and that's a a benefit of working on infrastructure projects. One of the things that I think you did early on that um, is a great thing to see and to remind you what it's like to get things done is an earlier project of yours having to do with the streetcar named Desire. Is that right? Yes, I love that
2: project. It's still one of my very favorite projects that we worked on. It's an extension of the streetcar line in New Orleans, which is not too far from where I grew up and where my heart really is. And I had a client, still have a client, who manages and runs the system there. And that was a community that had suffered significantly as a result of Hurricane Katrina and was still working its way back up. They had a significant amount of management issues. They had staffing problems. Um, because they had a, a lack of available and trained staff, because they couldn't be housed in the city that they loved and grew up in. And the, the, one of the ways that the community really felt like they were overcoming what had happened during the storm is hearing that bell and getting the St. Charles streetcar, which is one of the oldest continuously running streetcars in the United States, getting that back up and running, which was one of our first tasks, and then doing an extension onto that project was something that really motivated people. And one of the things that I love about my job is that it gets people to work. These projects that we're financing make an appreciable difference in people's day because it means getting goods to market and getting people to jobs. And this one was particularly personal personal to me because of the location, because of the culture of that community, and because it was a project that I, I knew what the outcome could be and what the implications of that were. And the, after working on it for some time, um, my talented colleague, Sev Miller, and I got $45 million out of a, a Obama program called Tiger in order to expand the streetcar in New Orleans. And it still is one of my very favorite ones and one of my very favorite activities to do when I'm down there visiting is to get on that streetcar and ride it and see the school kids in their little plaid uniforms and the nannies coming home from work and the tourists that are enjoying seeing the mansion mansions on St. Charles and then extending that line and seeing the extension being prepared um, that goes into the Central Business District and down in the hurricane-ravaged areas that are coming back. It's just really inspiring, and I'm so honored to have had a part of that.
1: Well, you have had the, the fun that comes with being an entrepreneur, inventing something and motivating people and bringing them together and ending up with a a business development which is profitable and a a sort of a win-win for everybody. But in a way, isn't that very much like what you did in government going back to the statute and the early things, trying to invent something, work with people to collaborate, and weren't you sort of an entrepreneur in government and that laid the basis of, of, of how you're operating now?
2: If you think about what comes to mind when you think about an entrepreneur, what skills an entrepreneur has, some of those same features um, or skills I tried to employ in my my career in the government on the Hill and in the administration, but it is different. When you are spending your time and personal treasure on standing up a business and finding a roster of clients that you value and that value what you have to offer, it is a different motivation and there's a different um, set of drivers, I think. Um, is it frightening and,
1: to be out of outside the big hierarchy and, and kind of out there on your own?
2: Well, I surrounded myself with some partners that I really respect and who have skill sets that are different than mine, and I learn from them all the time. I learn from them about, and I'll give you an example, I don't do any lobbying myself on the Hill, but when we were expanding our business and thinking about what is it that clients who are looking at infrastructure finance and how to pay for what mayors and governors and CEOs of public agencies want, what is it that they need that we're not currently offering? So I do a lot of executive level communication, testifying before city boards or before metropolitan planning organizations or talking to CEOs about how we make their infrastructure dreams come true by bringing the money to them. But the critical feature that needed to happen that we did not offer until recently was a lobbying function. So someone that was effective at crafting a message and going to get the congressional delegation in the area where the project was being proposed on board as well as going to the authorizers and the appropriators to make sure the project was being advanced in such a way that it would eventually be funded. And when we decided that we needed that particular component to make our business well-rounded and um, offer everything you need in order to get to yes, the part that was missing is the lobbying piece. So instead of trying to pick up that function ourselves, I thought, who was the most effective lobbyist? Who came to lobby me when I was on the Hill? and that came to visit the administration who ended up with a lot of successful projects. And then we chose that person to round out our lobbying function. So the key for me was not feeling like it's scary because I have to do it all on my own, but it was how do you ask for help? How do you determine what your deficiencies are and what your specific skills are, the things that you're good at, and then how do you complement that to be responsive to the client base that you have. So it was a calculated decision on our part to add somebody new that had a set of skills that were different than what we had.
1: Well, your career on the Hill has taken you to some fascinating places. You've traveled around the world. You've met lots of interesting people. Do you have any advice for young people today who may be thinking about just starting their own careers on the Hill? Is it still a great place to get started? And, and how do you frame that vision that carries someone so far?
2: It is a great place to get started, and there's really no uh, duplicate for it. There's no other place. There's no other um, town. There's no other opportunity that is like being on the Hill. There's no no place that you can really replicate that experience, so I'm so glad that I have that and so many years of it. I was recently asked to speak to a group of women in finance, and the the topic was about how do you get ahead in a business that typically is not dominated by females? And I was moderating a panel, and they said, what do you have um, based on your years of experience on the Hill and the administration and now in the private sector, what are the three things, if you could boil them down to three, that would help you get ahead? And I thought about it on the train on the way up to New York, which is where the event held, and it kind of boiled down to this, and I'll I'll repeat it to you because I think it actually bears repeating – um, it boils down to this, for me, it boiled down to the three M's, mentors, mistakes, and moxie. So mentors is an easy one. It's not an easy one to find necessarily a skilled mentor and someone that will take you under their wing and will um, provide you constructive criticism, which is very useful. Um, but it's, it's a really important feature of getting ahead in your career, because it is about finding someone who's, who's invested in you, professionally and personally, and who cares enough about you and your professional success that they'll give you constructive criticism. And you have to be open to it. You have to be open to it. You have to hear it. And then you have to take that next step to put it to use. The second one is mistakes. And I've made a lot of them. So I I Mm -hmm. consider myself an expert in the second M of this.
1: And surviving them, huh?
2: Yes, yes. I think that resiliency, making mistakes and being resilient after them and owning up to them is a really critical feature, or at least has been in my career. Someone said something to me that has really stuck with me a lot. There was a a woman who was an Air Force general. She was a three-star general, a friend of my daddy's. And she said one day, well, she always wore this turtle pin and I asked her one day, "What's up with the pen?" She wasn't wearing her uniform. She was had a had a pen on. I think she was over to supper at our house, and she she pointed to the pen and I said, "What's the story behind that?" And she said, "My favorite animal is the turtle," and it surprised me. I mean, who turtles are nice, but what's particularly um, special about them? And she said, "Because you think of them as slow and methodical and maybe not a not a genius um, genius animal." Um, but she said, I value the turtle because y- the turtle never gets anywhere unless he sticks his neck out. He never gets anywhere unless he sticks oh, his great. neck out. And if you are too afraid to make a mistake, you'll never stick your neck out. And I think about that, and I actually have a turtle pin now um, that I wear when I want to encourage myself to do something that's risky that may end up being a mistake. But you have to be willing mm-hmm. to make mistakes, or otherwise you're never going to get anywhere. And the third M is moxie. So Google would probably tell you moxie means something like determination or fortitude or character. Um, but mostly it's about putting to putting yourself out there, being in a unique position where you say, I'm going to keep at this until I achieve it, and I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to be dissuaded. You can't let your setbacks keep you from achieving. And if you've got moxie, determination, fortitude, and you're willing to make a mistake, and you're willing to own up to a mistake when you have made one, and you have a mentor who can criticize you but also still be invested in you, three critical components to getting at least where I've gotten.
1: Sherry, I think that's a wonderful summary of how you can get ahead on the Hill or in so many careers. I love it. Mentors, mistakes, and moxie, the three M's. Thank yep. you so much for sharing that and for sharing your story with us today. It's always fun to find out what you're up to, and it's, it's always interesting. So thank you so much.
2: Bev, thank you for having me. I enjoyed being with you
1: today. Today we've been talking with Sherry Little about her career as an entrepreneur and her distinguished career in government service. Today's career tip is about herding cats, Sometimes it's hard to lead a collaboration or get a team to work together when you don't have the authority. You can keep yourself on track by asking three simple questions. One is, what's the goal? Why are we here? The next one is, who has an interest in this? Who are the stakeholders and what do they need? And the third critical question is, do we have the right logistics in place? If you ask those three questions, you can go a long way to herding that group of cats. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Beverly Jones, author of Think like an entrepreneur, act like a CEO.